I'll start with some housekeeping details and I'll do the introduction later. This lecture is going to be taped today, so I'd greatly appreciate it if you could turn off your cell phones or put it on mute and also keep your conversations to a minimum. Uh, we don't want any disruptions of the taping if possible, so thank you for your cooperation. Uh, my name is Satish Udpa, and it's my distinct pleasure to welcome each one of you to this uh, to this third in a series of lectures given by Professor Rajmohan Gandhi on Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, today's lecture is entitled uh, Confronting the Empire, Gandhi and Churchill. The topic is interesting from several perspectives. Uh, and Professor Gandhi, I'm sure, will shed light on a lot of, lot of the issues surrounding this, uh, this relationship. But for me, um, uh, it, 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 the interest lies in the two sets of personalities that, that Churchill displayed during his lifetime. If you grew up in the West, Churchill was a remarkable person. He was a statesman a literary giant, uh, and an extraordinary individual who kept his country going in the most difficult of times. That is absolutely true. Um, but if you grow up in a place like India, as I did, uh, you would probably see a different side of his personality. Thomas Keneally, in his well-known book, Three Famines, says that Churchill preferred um, the Bengalis to starve and die uh, on a mass scale during the Great Bengal Famine in 1943-44. Uh, he was willing to do that and risk uh, the loss of a battle with, with Japan. I don't know which side of Churchill's personality Professor Gandhi is planning to present today, but I suspect uh, I, I think I have my own suspicions. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, which brings me to the speaker today. To, to those who are uh, advancing the cause of peace anywhere and everywhere in this world, Professor Rajmohan Gandhi needs no introduction, none whatsoever. A, he's a household name, and everyone in this business knows him. A lifelong and tireless fighter for human rights and justice, uh, he's been a strong advocate for reconciliation, both through the well-known organization known as Initiatives of Change International, as well as on his own. For me, growing up in India, he was a hero. Uh, he was, you know, I aspired to meet him, but I never could. So it was a, it's a source of great pleasure for him to be able to shake his hands and have a conversation with you. Thank you, uh, Professor Gandhi, for giving me that opportunity. So he's currently at MSU as a visiting HANA professor. It's a distinct honor and privilege to be, host, to be able to host a humanitarian of such caliber and stature. Please join me in welcoming Professor Rajmohan Gandhi. Thank you, Professor Udpa, for those very kind and generous words. Am I being heard? Is the sound okay? No. Does this need any attention here? Is it better now? 
Okay. Uh, so as uh, Professor Udpa mentioned, uh, this is the third in a series of lectures uh, on the life and legacy of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, the first lecture was called Gandhi's Passion, What Really Drove Him? The second had two parts to it. The first part was how Gandhi discovered Satyagraha, nonviolent resistance. And the second part of the second lecture was uh, on Gandhi's religious beliefs. And this third lecture uh, is about Gandhi's confrontation with the empire and with some focus on the Gandhi-Churchill relationship. Now, Gandhi's opposite number in the empire was, of course, Winston Churchill, who would have first heard of Gandhi in the year 1899-1900, when Churchill was a war correspondent in South Africa. In his book, My African Journey, Churchill wrote that the interests of the Indians and the British in South Africa were irreconcilable, suggesting that Asiatics might teach the African natives evil ways, as Churchill put it. He added that the white man in South Africa believed that he could strike down the Indian immigrant with his hands. That remark by Churchill could well have been a description of an actual incident in Durban in 1897, two years before Churchill's arrival in South Africa, when a white mob very nearly lynched a 27-year-old Gandhi. Nine years after that incident, Churchill, who was five years younger, and Gandhi met for the first and last time in London. Churchill was colonial secretary and Gandhi had journeyed to England to seek imperial protection for South Africa's Indians. That interview was cordial enough, but the torchbearers of empire and Swaraj were fated to clash, Swaraj self-rule. When in February 1931, Lord Irwin, the Viceroy of India, invited Gandhi to talk with him in the Viceroy's brand new mansion in New Delhi about possible dominion status for India, Churchill uttered his famous alarm that, quote, a seditious Middle Temple lawyer, now posing as a fakir, was striding half naked up the steps of the Viceregal Palace to parley on equal terms with the King Emperor. Now, Churchill had made a minor mistake. Gandhi's law studies in London took place at the Inner Temple, not the Middle Temple. A month later, after Irwin accepted some of Gandhi's demands and Gandhi agreed to attend a conference in London, Churchill protested in the House of Commons that Gandhi and the Indian National Congress had been raised to a towering pedestal and appeasement had been offered to those inflicting such humiliation and defiance as has not been known since the British first trod the soil of India, said Churchill. During that London conference of 1931, Gandhi talked with every major British leader. He even had tea with the king, but Churchill turned down Gandhi's requests to meet him. In his utterances in England, Gandhi did not hide his goal. The object of our nonviolent movement, he said, is complete independence for India, not in any mystic sense, but in the English sense of the word. I feel, he went on, that every country is entitled to it 
without any question of its fitness or otherwise. As every country is fit to eat, to drink, and to breathe, even so is every nation fit to manage its affairs no matter how badly. 10 years later, in August 1941, Churchill, by now Prime Minister, referred to the Atlantic Charter for National Independence. He spoke of more than a dozen countries in Europe and Asia where independence was lost or threatened, but he was silent about India. And in November of 1942, after Gandhi's Quit India call and arrest earlier that year, Churchill declared that he had not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. Churchill was not pleased when in May 1944, the Viceroy, Wavell, released Gandhi on health grounds. Eight weeks later, according to Wavell's diary, the Prime Minister sent him, quote, a peevish telegram to ask why Gandhi had not died yet. In the summer of 1945, the British people voted out the victor of their war against Germany. Though no longer Prime Minister, Churchill exhorted Viceroy Wavell to keep a bit of India, even if independence was unavoidable. And he also asked for India to be broken up into, as he put it, Pakistan, Hindustan, and Princesstan. After independence and partition, when carnage occurred in both halves of Punjab, Winston Churchill, now in the opposition, underscored Gandhi's shame in a speech on 27 September 1947. The fearful massacres, he said, which are occurring in India are no surprise to me. We are, of course, he added, only at the beginning of these horrors and butcheries perpetrated upon one another with the ferocity of cannibals by the races gifted with capacities for the highest culture and who had for generations dwelt side by side in general peace under the broad, tolerant, and impartial rule of the British Crown and Parliament continued Churchill, I cannot but doubt that the future will witness a vast abridgment of the subcontinent's population, unquote. To these formidable phrases from his old foe, Gandhi, who had arrived in Delhi from Eastern India and hoped to go to Punjab, offered an immediate and pretty remarkable response. Speaking to those present at his prayer meeting on September 28, he first translated into Hindi Churchill's strong and hurtful sentences. Next, he called the former premier a great man. He added that there was no doubt that Churchill, who took the helm when Great Britain was in great danger, had saved the British Empire in World War II. And Gandhi admitted that a few hundred thousand persons in India had indeed taken to the path of barbarism. Then Gandhi took Churchill to task for describing the killings in India with, as Gandhi put it, such relish and gross exaggeration. And he asked Churchill to take the trouble of thinking about Britain's responsibility in the tragedy. Though not referring to Churchill's personal wish for India's breakup, Gandhi added that by dividing India before quitting, Britain had unwittingly invited the two parts of the country to fight each other a step the future may or may not justify, said Gandhi. He concluded by saying to his people, many of you have given grounds to Mr. Churchill for making such remarks. You still have sufficient time to prove Mr. Churchill's prediction wrong.
the weapon of satyagraha enabled the Indian people to go beyond petitioning, which was humiliating and mostly fruitless, and beyond bomb throwing, which only provoked more repression. Satyagraha also baffled the empire. Repressing nonviolent demonstrators invited outrage, but permitting them to defy the law eroded imperial prestige. Between 1917 and 1942, Gandhi initiated numerous localized or nationwide satyagrahas against oppression by European planters of indigo growers in Bihar in 1917, against land tax in Gujarat's Kheda district in 1918, for higher wages for textile workers in Ahmedabad in 1918, across India in 1919 against curbs on free speech, in 1919-20 for action against the perpetrators of the Amritsar massacre. In 1920-22 for support to India's Muslims offended that Muslim holy places in the Middle East had passed from Turkish to European control. Then the nationwide defiance of the tax on salt in 1930. An All India defiance of restrictions on gatherings and assembly in 1932-33. Individual disobedience across India of curbs on freedom of speech in 1940-41. And finally, the nationwide quit India stir of 1942. Imperial will weakened from this succession of blows and India gained independence. Other factors too were at work, of course, including wars that consumed British resources and energy, as well as efforts of Indians willing to use violence. But the empire's chief guardians conceded the major role played by Satyagraha. In achieving these results, Gandhi was aided by his flair, like that of a brilliant general, for knowing where to strike, when to strike, when to stop and regroup, and when to attack again. Gandhi's incessant reminders to the people of India that their fight was against specific curbs and against British rule, but not against the British people these admonitions were often, but not always, heeded. Rejecting the option of whipping up hatred against the British, Gandhi had written in 1925, I cannot love Muslims or Hindus and hate Englishmen. And he added, by a long course of prayerful discipline, I have ceased for over 40 years to hate anybody. A year later, he asked all Indians to reflect on the question. 15 July 1926. We cannot love one another if we hate Englishmen. We cannot love the Japanese and hate Englishmen. We must either let the law of love rule us through and through or not at all. Love among ourselves based on hatred of others breaks down under the slightest pressure. In 1931, when he spent a few months in England immediately after the triumphant disobedience over salt that so offended Churchill, the British people, including workers in Lancashire, hurt by Indian boycotts, gave him a welcome that contrasted starkly with popular British reactions decades earlier to the 1857 revolt, which had seen gruesome violence, including by Indians. At that time, reprisal, vengeance, and subduing the savage Oriental were popular cries in England. Making a private remark that would become unforgettable Charles Dickens wrote in a letter on 4 October 1857, I wish I were commander in chief in India. I should do my utmost 
to exterminate the race upon whom the stain of the late cruelties rested. If English reactions to Indian defiance had changed since then, a major reason was the nonviolent nature of the rebellions that Gandhi had led. In 1931, many in Britain remembered his stoppage in 1922 of a great nationwide movement after angry Indians mercilessly killed 22 of the empire's Indian police in Chauri Chaura in eastern UP, a withdrawal resented at the time by most in the nonviolent army. Then there was Gandhi's insistence that the British had to be understood not as a single category, but as a nation of different individuals. This was a sharp departure. For in India's long history, alien conquerors had again and again been dismissed as an uncivilized homogenous mass, not deserving curiosity, study, or differentiation. Written at the end of the 12th century, when Muhammad Ghauri attacked India, the Sanskrit poem Prithviraj Vijaya described a visit by Gauri's ambassador to the court of the North Indian king Prithviraj in these words, quote, the color of his beard, his eyebrows, his very lashes was yellower than the grapes that grow in his native region. Horrible was his speech, like the cry of wild birds. All his phonemes were impure impure as his complexion. He had what looked like skin disease, so ghastly white he was. But even if his phonemes were terrible, this ambassador had at least learned the Indian language used in Prithviraj's court. By contrast, Indians were unwilling not only in his time, but for centuries thereafter to learn the supposedly barbaric language of an invader. Our Gandhi, however, not only learned the English language, as did many of his compatriots, he also looked at the British people as individuals. He separated a person from a demographic mass. This was not necessarily the case with his colleagues. When Gandhi and Vallabhai Patel were together in an imperial prison in 1932, Patel referred to British diehards and said of the British Prime Minister at the time, Ramsden MacDonald, they're all birds of the same feather. Gandhi disagreed, observing, still I think MacDonald has his own convictions. After an English official, the commissioner of Pune, made a routine visit to the prisoners, Gandhi told Patel that the commissioner's casual remarks merited reflection, for they, he said, echoed the table talk of the ruling class. To Gandhi, the British were a sum total of individuals each of whom deserved careful attention, even if they frequently held similar views, and they deserved more than attention. We have seen that Gandhi wanted the Indian people to fight, but also love the British. As a result, India under Gandhi presented to the world a new, if strange, way of fighting. Moreover, the free India of Gandhi's vision was ready, if there was equality and no subordination, to partner with England and the West for global purposes. Two months before his death, Gandhi imagined a new and robust India, not warlike, learning the best that the West has to give and becoming the hope not only of Asia and Africa, but of the whole of the aching world. Gandhi's chief challenge, in fact, was not the empire's might, but India's in fighting. When in 1945, Churchill asked Wavell 
to split India into three or more parts. He was merely repeating a strategy that Rudyard Kipling, poet of empire, had spelled out in 1911 in a history book aimed at British boys and girls interested in the story, as he put it, of Great Britain and her empire. In that book, co-authored by C.L.R. Fletcher, Kipling underlined the usefulness of India's divisions. He said, the extension of our rule over the whole Indian peninsula was made possible first by the exclusion of any other British, any other European power, and secondly, by the fact that the weaker states and princes in India continually called in our help against the stronger. From our three starting points, Kipling went on, of Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay, we have gradually swallowed the whole country. Asserting that Britain had suppressed the 1857 rebels with the help of Indian groups, such as the gallant Sikhs and the Gurkhas, Kipling added that three factors blocked Indian nationalism in the post-1857 period. Muslim fear of Hindu rule, opposition by the native princes, and the complete indifference, as he put it, of the vast majority of the agricultural populations. Kipling could have added a fourth obstacle, the untouchables who saw no merit in high caste Hindus replacing whites as India's ruling class. Given these realities, as important as the weapon of Satyagraha and just as unexpected was Gandhi's success in uniting bitterly divided Indians. Everyone knows that this success was incomplete. India was partitioned in 1947. Yet a historian must conclude that but for Gandhi's counter strategies, the empire would have succeeded in using India's diversity to prevent Indian independence or greatly delay it. Gandhi answered Kipling by bidding to make all in India Indians and by affiliating himself to Indians in their entirety rather than to his Indian section or sections. Gujaratis or Banyas or Hindus. If he had to focus on a portion of the population, Gandhi would select the peasants and the poor who were the great majority and who crossed borders of caste, language, and religion. India had seen impressive political leaders before Gandhi. Some worked as hard as him, gave more rousing speeches, but their focus usually was either on an unpopular British officer in their area or on their caste or community in their region for whose political leadership they strove. From the first day of his return to India from South Africa in January 1915, Gandhi focused not on the enemy, the British, nor on natural allies, Gujaratis of his caste, but on the common people of all of India, and he sought to tap their power. Unlike other politicians, Gandhi had seen from the start of his South African days the interconnectedness, practical and moral, of three issues, independence, Hindu-Muslim understanding, and untouchability. Indians would not deserve freedom from alien rule if they continued to treat a portion among them as untouchables. Caste Hindus were unlikely to obtain Swaraj if untouchables opposed it. Similarly, if they fought each other, Hindus and Muslims would neither merit nor attain independence. Gandhi also understood the necessity of finding the right pace on the three battlefronts. Patient work would be needed to attract Muslims and the untouchables onto the road to Swaraj. 
Yet Gandhi could not afford to be outflanked by Hindu militants, tempting the influential Hindu high castes with an early Swaraj won via the bomb. A Swaraj, moreover, that the high castes would dominate. Or on the other hand, he could not afford to be outflanked by Muslim extremists, offering a revival of Muslim supremacy. Or by radical foes of caste, presenting dreams of instant equality among Indians, if necessary, under British auspices. His thrusts should not be premature, nor his caution excessive. Moreover, luck favored Gandhi. In South Africa, he found Indians of all kinds and backgrounds with whom he could work. Encountering there an India in miniature, he built links with caste Hindus, untouchables, Muslims from different sects, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, Hindi speakers from UP and Bihar, Tamils, Telugus, and others. Thus, he found openings not available to leaders confined, say, to Bengal or Maharashtra, UP or South India. Applying some of these lessons soon after arriving in India, Gandhi initiated his first, his first Satyagraha, not in his native Gujarat, but in far off Bihar on behalf of humble peasants growing indigo for European planters in Champaran. That Champaran exercise won major relief for the peasants. Moreover, news of its success brought Bihar closer to all parts of India and enhanced Indianness. Something similar happened after other battles in which Gandhi became involved. In another major accomplishment, Gandhi not only transformed the Indian National Congress organizationally, a fact that was noted in an earlier lecture, he also widened its goals. From 1920, when Gandhi and the Congress became synonymous, the removal of untouchability and Hindu-Muslim understanding became part of the political agenda of the Congress along with independence. Also valuable for the national movement was Gandhi's ability to seize the moral high ground. When in December 1919, four years after Gandhi's return to India, the Indian National Congress met for a plenary in Amritsar, the city which eight months earlier had witnessed the historic massacre ordered by Brig Brigadier Reginald Dyer, Gandhi drafted a resolution condemning the massacre, but criticizing also the preceding violence in which five young Englishmen were killed and an Englishwoman assaulted. A 32-year-old Bombay lawyer and writer who was a delegate in Amritsar, K.M. Munshi, who later held senior positions in independent India, recorded the heated discussion on this resolution. The persons mentioned in Munshi's account are well known in Indian political history. The Mrs. Besant he speaks of was the famous Annie Besant, the Irish woman who had made India her home and Indian home rule her mission. Reported Munshi, the hearts of most of us revolted at the latter part of the resolution. This must have been Mrs. Besant's work, many thought, she was, after all, British. One Punjab leader, Munshi went on, gave expression to the feeling rather crudely. No one born of an Indian mother, he said, could have drafted this resolution. Lokamanya Tilak, too, was indignant. And so were Pal and Chitranjan Das, popular leaders from Bengal. And the latter part of the resolution, reported Munshi, was lost by an overwhelming majority. 
Munshi goes on. The next day, the president wanted the committee to reconsider the resolution. As Gandhiji, he said, was very keen on it. There were vehement protests. Ultimately, Gandhiji, who was unwell, was helped to the table to move that the resolution be reconsidered. He spoke sitting. Out of respect, the House sat quiet, but with ill-concealed impatience. Referring to the remark that no son born of an Indian mother could have drafted the resolution, Gandhiji stated that he had considered deeply and long whether, as an Indian, he could have drafted the resolution, for indeed he had drafted it. But after long searching of the heart, he went on, he had come to the conclusion that only a person born of an Indian mother could have drafted it. And then he spoke as if his whole life depended upon the question. When he stopped, we were at his feet. The resolution was reconsidered and accepted in its original form. According to Munshi, the old guard were routed at Amritsar, and Gandhiji was left in possession of the field." Unquote. More importantly, Gandhi had given a new meaning to Indian honor, enabled the Congress to capture the moral heights, and put the empire on the defensive. Of the 10 satyagrahas earlier listed, only one carried a religious tinge, the demand after the end of World War I that the empire allay the resentment of India's Muslims at European control over Islam's holy places in the Middle East. The other nine satyagrahas were all totally secular, and the one of which the world took the greatest notice was the Salt March of 1930. Let us look at this Salt March. At the end of December 1929, the Congress meeting in Lahore, which would become part of Pakistan in 1947, resolved on a fresh round of civil disobedience, but was unable to select the ground on which to offer battle. Some wanted the land tax lowered. Others proposed marches on imperial buildings. Picketing of liquor shops was suggested. Subhash Bose asked for the creation of a parallel government. As the founder of Satyagraha, Gandhi was asked to pick the issue. After about five weeks, he came up with salt, or rather, the tax on salt. The empire's officers were not the only ones to chuckle over salt. Jawaharlal Nehru, his father Motilal, Vallabhai Patel, and other prominent leaders in Congress were shocked. One Congress leader asked if the fly of the Salt Act deserved the hammer of Satyagraha. India's leading British-owned journal, The Statesman of Calcutta, wrote, there is something almost childishly theatrical in challenging in this way the salt monopoly of the government. Now the world knows that the last laugh belonged to Gandhi. He had chosen salt because it was basic to life because the tax on it affected every Indian, Hindu, Muslim, female, male, untouchable, high caste, whatever, and especially the poor, and in every part of India. And because defying the law was simple, not easy, but simple, all you had to do was to pick up salt from anywhere on India's long seashore or buy or sell salt illegally collected anywhere. The evening before his march was to begin from his Ahmedabad ashram, 
Gandhi spelled out the magic of nonviolent defiance. Supposing I had announced, he said, that I was going to launch a violent campaign, do you think the government would have left me free until now? Can you show me an example in history, be it England, America, Russia, where the state has tolerated violent defiance of authority for a single day? But here you know that the government is puzzled and perplexed. Supposing, he went on, 10 men in each of the 700,000 villages in India come forward to manufacture salt and to disobey the Salt Act, what can this government do? Even the worst autocrats you can imagine would not dare to blow regiments of peaceful resistors out of a cannon's mouth. On 12 March 1930, Gandhi and 78 carefully chosen colleagues began their 220-mile walk from Ahmedabad to Dandi through several villages and towns, which too were carefully chosen. Many Indians employed by the government in villages along the route resigned their jobs, and hundreds followed the marchers from their village to the next. For days, the empire hesitated to arrest Gandhi. It was afraid of unmanageable unrest. Moreover, Gandhi had not as yet violated any law. Reaching Dandi on 5 April, he scooped up a fistful of salt from the sand, thereby breaking the law and releasing a spring. Thousands followed him, picking up salt on the west coast, on the east coast, in Bengal, in the Tamil country, and elsewhere. Ranks of peaceful satyagrahis swelled. In the hinterland, thousands bought or sold contraband salt. Far to the north of Ahmedabad, Pashtuns of the northwestern province, led by the remarkable Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, the imposing founder of a nonviolent army known as the Khudai Khidmatgar, violated a law banning assembly and stood up before the government's horses, sticks, and machine guns. Ordered to open fire at unarmed Pashtuns, the empire's Garhwal rifles disobeyed the order, thereby staging their revolt. As Churchill would soon lament, the authority of the empire had taken a nosedive. It had plunged in front of an intrigued world, kept informed by reporters flocking to India. Gandhi and close to 100,000 Indians were placed behind bars for six months or longer. But the India empire equation had changed forever. The Canadian scholar, George Woodcock, has said, in his superb sense of timing, in his quick intuitive grasp of the balance of forces, in his instinct for effective symbolic action, and in his grasp of the strategy of struggle, Gandhi was one of the most able politicians of his time. This excellent summation leaves out a major accomplishment of the Sol Satyagraha. Through it, hundreds of thousands of Indians, men, women, and the young, conquered the fear of being beaten or being imprisoned. Two other aspects of the Salt March should be noted. In villages on his route, Gandhi fraternized with the untouchables, bathed in water from impure untouchable wells, embarrassing and offending high caste reception committees. Secondly, women joined the struggle in growing numbers. Frederick Sykes, the Bombay governor who faced the brunt of Gandhi's march, said in a letter to Viceroy Irwin, quote, there is no doubt that Gandhi has a great emotional hold. The popular enthusiasm 
largely among the younger generation, and increasingly amongst women and girls, has been more than was expected, said the governor. Before reaching Dandi, Gandhi wrote these lines in 1930, now well known about women. To call woman the weaker sex is a libel. It is man's injustice to woman. If by strength is meant moral power, then woman is immeasurably man's superior. Has she not greater intuition? Is she not more self-sacrificing? Has she not greater powers of endurance? Has she not greater courage? If nonviolence is the law of our being, the future is with woman. Among the numerous leaders of national movements for independence in Asia and Africa after World War II ended, Gandhi was the only one not to assume office when freedom was won. He had opted for this abstinence years earlier. On 6 March 1931, just after the famous Gandhi-Irwin Pact was signed, the following exchange took place in New Delhi. Journalist, do you expect complete independence in your lifetime? Gandhi, I do look for it most decidedly. I still consider myself a young man of 62. Journalist, would you agree to become the prime minister of the future government? Gandhi, no. It will be reserved for younger minds and stouter hearts. He had been thinking of the future before this, which was one reason why in 1929, he declined the presidency of the Congress to which he was voted and instead proposed the name of 40-year-old Jawaharlal Nehru, who did become president. At the end of 1930, when another president was needed and Vithal Bhai Patel, who had chaired the Central Assembly in Delhi, but had lately joined the ranks of the Satyagrahis, pressed his claim Gandhi threw his weight behind Patel's younger brother, Vallabhai, who became the new president with Jawaharlal as the general secretary. Much later, in November 1947, after India had become independent and again thinking for the future, Gandhi proposed young Jayaprakash Narayan for Congress president. Prime Minister Nehru, Deputy Prime Minister Vallabhai Patel jointly and successfully opposed the idea. Yet what emerges is old Gandhi's interest in the future of the Congress and therefore in younger leaders. We looked earlier at Gandhi's role, begun in 1919, in creating a nationwide and multi-level structure for the Congress. It seems legitimate to see his lifelong interest in the health of the Congress as part of his concern for the future of independent India's democracy. When in 1915 he first involved himself with the Congress, that body was divided between moderates and extremists. Next, in the 1920s and 1930s, came a division uh, between anti-empire hardliners and those seeing benefits in negotiating with it. From the early 1930s, the Congress also had an active socialist group, which clashed with those who recognized the reality and value of the better off and also of the market uh, by the way, I think I'm finding this a little too hot uh, on myself. Can we do something about this? I don't know. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, 
So I was referring to the divisions inside the Congress. Uh, from the 1920s, there was a running conflict inside the Congress between those wanting to take struggle and satyagraha to the princely states that formed, a large, that formed a large portion of India's land, where secure under the imperial umbrella, rajas and nawabs ruled at times in autocratic fashion, and others cautious about pushing these influential princes even more deeply into British hands. In the late 1930s, when for two years elected Congress ministers enjoyed a share of real power in most of India's provinces, even as the center remained in British hands, there were sharp disputes between those believing that power would aid the cause of freedom and others worried that office would soften freedom fighters and turn them into defenders of empire. And the last year of Gandhi's life saw a divide between those committed to an India that provided equal rights to all and others who felt that in an India shorn of its Muslim majority parts, Hindus ought to enjoy the privileged position that was being sought for Muslims in Pakistan. Each of these divides inside the Congress was real and sharp and capable of splitting the organization. In a remarkable and usually overlooked feat, Gandhi managed to bridge or manage every one of these perilous divides. Sometimes he used shock treatment, as in 1934, when he decided to retire from the Congress. The years from 1932 to 1934 had seen great repression from the government. Most, including Gandhi, had been in and out of prison. There were sharp differences within the Congress on how to respond to the repression. In a letter in September 1934 addressed to Patel, the last elected president of the Congress, Gandhi explained that many who differed from him suppressed their views, seeing himself as a stifling force, arresting the full play of reason. Gandhi said he would resign to promote free discussion. At this point of time, prominent figures, Patel, Rajagopalachari, and Rajendra Prasad, all three holding conservative economic views, nursed sharp misgivings about the socialists. Nehru sympathized with the latter, but was in prison. Feeling a bond with all these colleagues, Gandhi concluded that the best way of not lending his weight to any one side was for him to leave the Congress. The two groups should fend for themselves. If necessary, have it out with one another and find their levels. If need arose, he would work from outside to unite the groups. There was also his advancing age, plus physical attacks on his person from orthodox elements, infuriated by his campaigns against untouchability and for Hindu-Muslim understanding. The Congress should learn to think of a future without him. Finally, Gandhi sensed that his retirement might facilitate a settlement between the Congress and the empire. If this, if this did not come about, and another clash proved necessary, the Congress could always summon him to lead it. Maulana Azad, a prominent figure who had presided over the Congress in 1923 and would do so again from 1940 to 46, protested against Gandhi's proposed step in 1934. And a disconcerted Chari argued that Gandhi would surely be disappointed if he thought that he could retire and still keep the Congress or himself politically important. But in fact, Gandhi was being astute. His retirement would enable the Congress to present a cooperating face to the empire, while the chief rebel remained in the wings, available when the time came to resume 
fighting. Gandhi was not breaking with the Congress. He, he was only redefining his relationship with it. Yet, sending the resignation letter gave him a pang. It is not with a light heart, he wrote, that I leave this great organization. To the October 1934 session in Bombay, chaired by Rajendra Prasad, Gandhi said, I'm not going out as a protest against anything inside the Congress. I'm going out so that Congress, congressmen may think and act for themselves. My retirement does not in any way mean that I'm not ready to come back whenever my health is needed. I'm leaving the Congress to lift the weight which has been suppressing it in order that it may grow and I may grow myself. I'm leaving in order to develop the power that nonviolence has. If you have given me the position of a general commanding the army, you must allow that general to judge whether he serves the army by being at its head or whether he serves the army by retiring and giving places to lieutenants who have served well. If you believe that I've been a fairly wise general, you must believe in my judgment even now. Now, recreating and streamlining the Congress, fusing it with India's peasants and workers, turning it into a fighting machine and keeping it united, Gandhi had become one with the Congress. Later, we will see in another lecture that near the end of his life, Gandhi felt disappointed with the Congress and proposed a radical next step. Here, we must pause to recognize that even on its finest day, the Congress could not possibly represent all of the Indian people. India was simply too large, too populous, too varied, and too divided to be fully represented by one organization, no matter how remarkable, no matter how wisely guided. To put it differently, not, in ev not everyone in India felt that complete independence for India in the English sense of the term or getting out of alien control, to recall two of Gandhi's phrases, was their chief or sole goal. There were many groups in India who resented other Indian groups more than they resented alien rule. And if Gandhi felt called to liberate India from the empire, others felt a calling to liberate or protect their group from a larger and more powerful Indian group. And if Churchill was Gandhi's opposite number in the empire, a man like Muhammad Ali Jinnah seven years younger than Gandhi, saw Gandhi during phases in his life as an opposite number from whom his people, as he saw them, the Muslims of India, had to be saved. Likewise, a man like Bhimrao Ramji Ambedkar, 22 years younger than Gandhi, also saw the latter during phases in his life as someone from whom his people, as he saw them, the untouchables or the Dalits of India, had to be saved. Just as Gandhi was an admirer of, an, of empire until he became its unrelenting foe, both Jinnah and Ambedkar were Gandhi's admirers until they became his unrelenting foes. The stories of their relationship with Gandhi and of the relationship of the Muslims of India with the rest of India and of the Dalits of India with caste Hindus and of how Gandhi addressed those questions will be told in lectures four and five. Thank you very much.